Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 9 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Iceland. But what next? The day for our departure arrived. The day before it, our kind friend Monsieur Thompson brought us letters of introduction to Count Trampa, the Governor of Iceland, Monsieur Picterson, the Bishop Suffragan, and Monsieur Finson, Mayor of Reykjavik. My uncle expressed his gratitude by tremendous compressions of both his hands. On the second, at six in the evening, all our precious baggage being safely on board the Valkyria, the captain took us into a very narrow cabin. "'Is the wind favourable?' my uncle asked. "'Excellent,' replied Captain Bjarna. "'A southeaster. We shall pass down the sound full speed, with all sails set.' In a few minutes the schooner, under her mizzen, brigantine, topsail, and top-gallant sail, loosed from her moorings and made full sail through the straits. In an hour the captain of Denmark seemed to sink below the distant waves, and the Valkyria was skirting the coast by Elsinore. In my nervous frame of mind, I expected to see the ghost of Hamlet wandering on the legendary castle terrace. "'Sublime madman,' I said, "'no doubt you would approve of our expedition. Perhaps you would keep us company to the centre of the globe, to find the solution of your eternal doubts.' But there was no ghostly shape upon the ancient walls. Indeed, the castle is much younger than the heroic prince of Denmark. It now answers the purpose of a sumptuous lodge for the doorkeeper of the Straits of the Sound, before which every year there pass fifteen thousand ships of all nations. The castle of Kronsberg soon disappeared in the mist, as well as the tower of Helsingborg, built on the Swedish coast, and the schooner passed lightly on her way, urged by the breezes of the Kattegat. The Valkyrie was a splendid sailor, but on a sailing vessel you can place no dependence. She was taking to Reykjavik coal, household goods, earthenware, woolen clothing, and a cargo of wheat. The crew consisted of five men, all Danes. "'How long would the passage take?' my uncle asked. Ten days,' the captain replied, "'if we don't meet a nor'wester in passing the Pharaohs. "'But are you not subject to considerable delays?' "'No, Monsieur Liedenbrock, don't be uneasy.' We shall get there in very good time." At evening the schooner doubled the Skaw at the northern point of Denmark, in the night passed the Skager Rack, skirted Norway by Cape Lindness, and entered the North Sea. In two days more we sighted the coast of Scotland near Peterhead, and the Valkyria turned her lead towards the Faroe Islands, passing between the Orkneys and Shetlands. Soon the schooner encountered the great Atlantic swell. She had to tack against the north wind, and reached the Faroes only with some difficulty. On the eighth, the captain made out Meganus, the southernmost of these islands, 
and from that moment took a straight course for Cape Portland, the most southerly point of Iceland. The passage was marked by nothing unusual. I bore the troubles of the sea pretty well. My uncle, to his own intense disgust and his greater shame, was ill all through the voyage. He therefore was unable to converse with the captain about Snaffel, the way to get to it, the facilities for transport. He was obliged to put off these inquiries until his arrival, and spent all his time at full length in his cabin, of which the timbers creaked and shook with every pitch he took. It must be confessed he was not undeserving of his punishment. On the eleventh we reached Cape Portland. The clear open weather gave us a good view of Myrtle's yokel, which overhangs it. The cape is merely a low hill with steep sides, standing lonely by the beach. The Valkyria kept at some distance from the coast, taking a westerly course amidst great shoals of whales and sharks. Soon we came in sight of an enormous perforated rock, through which the sea dashed furiously. The Westman Islet seemed to rise out of the ocean like a group of rocks in a liquid plain. From that time the schooner took a wide berth and swept at a great distance round Cape Reykjanes, which forms the western point of Iceland. The rough sea prevented my uncle from coming on deck to admire these shattered and surf-beaten coasts. Forty-eight hours after, coming out of a storm which forced the schooner to scud under bare poles, we sighted east of us the beacon on Cape Skagen, where dangerous rocks extended far away seaward. An Icelandic pilot came on board, and in three hours the Valkyria dropped her anchor before Reykjavik in Foxa Bay. The professor at last emerged from his cabin, rather pale and wretched-looking, but still full of enthusiasm, and with ardent satisfaction shining in his eyes. The population of the town, wonderfully interested in the arrival of a vessel from which every one expected something, formed in groups upon the quay. My uncle left in haste his floating prison, or rather hospital. But before quitting the deck of the schooner he dragged me forward, and, pointing with outstretched finger north of the bay at a distant mountain terminating in a double peak, a pair of cones covered with perpetual snow, he cried, Snaffel! Snaffel! Then, recommending me, by an impressive gesture, to keep silence, he went into the boat which awaited him. I followed, and presently we were treading the soil of Iceland. The first man we saw was a good-looking fellow enough in a general's uniform. Yet he was not a general, but a magistrate, the governor of the island, Monsieur Le Baron Trampa himself. The professor was soon aware of the presence he was in. He delivered him his letters from Copenhagen, and then followed a short conversation in the Danish language, the purport of which I was quite ignorant of, and for a very good reason. But the result of this first conversation was that Baron Trampa placed himself entirely at the service of Professor Liedenbrock. My uncle was just as courteously received by the mayor, Monsieur Finson, whose appearance was as military and disposition and office as pacific as the governor's. As for the bishop's suffragan, Monsieur Picturson, he was at that moment engaged on an episcopal visitation in the north. For the time we must be resigned to wait for the honor of being presented to him. But Monsieur Fridrikson, professor of natural sciences at the school of Reykjavik, was a delightful man, and his friendship became very precious to me. 
this modest philosopher spoke only Danish and Latin. He came to proffer me his good offices in the language of Horace, and I felt that we were made to understand each other. In fact, he was the only person in Iceland with whom I could converse at all. This good-natured gentleman made over to us two of the three rooms which his house contained, and we were soon installed in it with all our luggage, the abundance of which rather astonished the good people of Reykjavik. "'Well, Axel,' said my uncle, "'we are getting on, and now the worst is over.' "'The worst?' I said, astonished. "'To be sure. Now we have nothing to do but go down.' "'Oh, if that is all, you are quite right. But, after all, when we have gone down, we shall have to get up again, I suppose. Oh, I don't trouble myself about that. Come, there's no time to lose. I am going to the library. Perhaps there is some manuscript of Sagnusum's there, and I should be glad to consult it. Well, while you are there, I will go into the town. Won't you? Oh, that is very uninteresting to me. It is not what is upon this island, but what is underneath that interests me. I went out and wandered wherever chance took me. It would not be easy to lose your way in Reykjavik. I was therefore under no necessity to inquire the road, which exposes one to mistakes when the only medium of intercourse is gesture. The town extends along a low and marshy level, between two hills. An immense bed of lava bounds it on one side and falls gently towards the sea. On the other extends the vast bay of Faxa, shut in at the north by the enormous glacier of the Snaffel, and of which the Valkyria was for the time the only occupant. Usually the English and French conservators of fisheries moor in this bay, but just then they were cruising about the western coasts of the island. The longest of the only two streets that Reykjavik possesses was parallel with the beach. Here lived the merchants and traders, in wooden cabins made of red planks set horizontally. The other street, running west, ends at the little lake between the house of the bishop and other non-commercial people. I had soon explored these melancholy ways. Here and there I got a glimpse of faded turf, looking like a worn-out bit of carpet, or some appearance of kitchen-garden, the sparse vegetables of which, potatoes, cabbages, and lettuces, would have figured appropriately upon a Lilliputian table. A few sickly wallflowers were trying to enjoy the air and sunshine. About the middle of the tin commercial street I found the public cemetery, enclosed in a mud wall, and where there seemed plenty of room. Then a few steps brought me to the governor's house, a butt compared with the town of Hamburg, a palace in comparison with the cabins of the Icelandic population. Between the little lake and the town the church is built in the Protestant style, of calcined stones extracted out of the volcanoes by their own labor and at their own expense. In high westerly winds it was manifest that the red tiles of the roof would be scattered in the air, to the great danger of the faithful worshippers. On a neighboring hill I perceived the National School, where, as I was informed later by our host, were taught Hebrew, English, French, and Danish four languages of which, with shame I confess it, I don't know a single word. After an examination I should have to stand last of the forty scholars educated at this little college, and I should have been held unworthy to sleep along with them in one of those little double closets, where more delicate use would have died of suffocation the very first night. 
In three hours I had seen not only the town but its environs. The general aspect was wonderfully dull. No trees and scarcely any vegetation. Everywhere bare rocks, signs of volcanic action. The Icelandic huts are made of earth and turf, and the walls slope inward. They rather resemble roofs placed on the ground. But then these roofs are meadows of comparative fertility. Thanks to the internal heat, the grass grows in them to some degree of perfection. It is carefully mown in the hay season. If it were not, the horses would come to pasture on these green abodes. In my excursion I met but few people. On returning to the main street I found the greater part of the population busied in drying, salting, and putting on board codfish, their chief export. The men looked like robust but heavy blond Germans with pensive eyes, conscious of being far removed from their fellow-creatures, poor exiles relegated to this land of ice, poor creatures who should have been Eskimo, since nature had condemned them to live only just outside the Arctic Circle. In vain did I try to detect a smile upon their lips. Sometimes, by a spasmodic and involuntary contraction of the muscles, they seemed to laugh, but they never smiled. Their costume consisted of a coarse jacket of black woolen cloth called in Scandinavian lands a vadmo, a hat with a very broad brim, trousers with a narrow edge of red, and a bit of leather rolled round the foot for shoes. The women looked as sad and as resigned as the men. Their faces were agreeable but expressionless, and they wore gowns and petticoats of dark vadmo. As maidens they wore over their braided hair a little knitted brown cap. When married, they put around their heads a colored handkerchief, crowned with a peak of white linen. After a good walk, I returned to Monsieur Fridrikson's house, where I found my uncle already in his host's company. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten Interesting Conversations with Icelandic Savants. Dinner was ready. Professor Liedenbrock devoured his portion voraciously, for his compulsory fast on board had converted his stomach into a vast, unfathomable gulf. There was nothing remarkable in the meal itself, but the hospitality of our host, more Danish than Icelandic, reminded me of the heroes of old. It was evident that we were more at home than he was himself. The conversation was carried on in the vernacular tongue, which my uncle mixed with German, and Monsieur Fridrikson with Latin for my benefit. It turned upon scientific questions as befits philosophers, but Professor Liedenbrock was excessively reserved and at every sentence spoke to me with his eyes, enjoining the most absolute silence upon our plans. In the first place, Monsieur Fridrikson wanted to know what success my uncle had had at the library. "'Your library! Why, there is nothing but a few tattered books upon almost deserted shelves!' "'Indeed,' replied Monsieur Fridrikson. "'Why, we possess eight thousand volumes, many of them valuable and scarce works in the old Scandinavian language, and we have all the novelties that Copenhagen sends us every year. Where do you keep your eight thousand volumes? For my part—oh, Monsieur Liedenbrock, they are all over the country. 
in this icy region we are fond of study. There is not a farmer nor a fisherman that cannot read and does not read. Our principle is that books, instead of growing mouldy behind an iron grating, should be worn out under the eyes of many readers. Therefore these volumes are passed from one to another, read over and over, referred to again and again, and it often happens that they find their way back to their shelves only after an absence of a year or two. And in the meantime, said my uncle rather spitefully, strangers, well, what would you have? Foreigners have their libraries at home, and the first essential for laboring people is that they should be educated. I repeat to you the love of reading runs in Icelandic blood. In 1816 we founded a prosperous literary society. Learned strangers think themselves honored in becoming members of it. It publishes books which educate our fellow countrymen, and do the country great service. If you will consent to be a corresponding member, Herr Liedenbrock, you will be giving us great pleasure." My uncle, who had already joined about a hundred learned societies, accepted with grace which evidently touched Monsieur Fridrikson. Now, said he, will you be kind enough to tell me what books you hope to find in our library, and I may perhaps enable you to consult them? My uncle's eyes and mine met. He hesitated. This direct question went to the root of the matter. But after a moment's reflection, he decided on speaking. Monsieur Fridrikson, I wish to know if amongst your ancient books you possessed any of the works of Arne Sagnusum. Arne Sagnusum, replied the Reykjavik professor. You mean that learned sixteenth-century savant, a naturalist, a chemist, and a traveller? Just so. One of the glories of Icelandic literature and science? That's the man. An illustrious man anywhere? Quite so. And whose courage was equal to his genius? I see that you know him well." My uncle was bathed in delight at hearing his hero thus described. He feasted his eyes upon Monsieur Fridrikson's face. "'Well,' he cried, "'where are his works?' "'His works, we have them not.' "'What, not in Iceland?' "'They are neither in Iceland nor anywhere else.' "'Why is that?' "'Because Arne Sagnusum was persecuted for heresy, and in 1573 his books were burned by the hands of the common hangman.' "'Very good! Excellent!' cried my uncle, to the great scandal of the professor of natural history. "'What?' he cried. "'Yes, yes! Now it is all clear! Now it is all unraveled! And I see why Sacknessum put into the Index Expertigorius and compelled to hide the discoveries made by his genius, was obliged to bury in an incomprehensible cryptogram the secret." "'What secret?' asked Monsieur Fridrikson, starting. "'Oh, just a secret which—' my uncle stammered. "'Have you some private document in your possession?' asked our host. "'No, I was only supposing a case.' "'Oh, very well,' answered Monsieur Fridrikson, who was kind enough not to pursue the subject when he had noticed the embarrassment of his friend. I hope you will not leave our island until you have seen some of its mineralogical wealth." "'Certainly,' replied my uncle. "'But I am rather late. Or have not others been here before me?' "'Yes, Herr Liedenbrock. The labours of Messrs. Olofsson and Povelson, pursued by order of the King. The researches of Troil, 
the scientific mission of Messrs. Gaimard and Robert on the French corvette La Recherche, and lately the observations of scientific men who came in the Rhine Hortense have added materially to our knowledge of Iceland. But I assure you, there is plenty left. Do you think so? said my uncle, pretending to look very modest and trying to hide the curiosity was flashing out of his eyes. Oh, yes, how many mountains, glaciers, and volcanoes there are to study, which are as yet but imperfectly known! Then, without going any further, that mountain in the horizon! That is Snefell! Ah, said my uncle, as coolly as he was able, is that Snefell? Yes, one of the most curious volcanoes, and the crater of which has scarcely ever been visited. Is it extinct? Oh, yes, more than five hundred years." "'Well,' replied my uncle, who was frantically locking his legs together to keep himself from jumping up in the air, "'that is where I mean to begin my geological studies, there on that Cephal, Fessel, what do you call it?' "'Sneffel,' replied the excellent Monsieur Fridrikson. This part of the conversation was in Latin. I had understood every word of it and I could hardly conceal my amusement at seeing my uncle trying to keep down the excitement and satisfaction which were brimming over in every limb and every feature. He tried hard to put on an innocent little expression of simplicity, but it looked like a diabolical grin. "'Yes,' said he, "'your words decide me. We will try to scale that Snefell. Perhaps even we may pursue our studies in its crater.' "'I am very sorry.' said Monsieur Fridrikson, that my engagements will not allow me to absent myself, or I would have accompanied you myself with both pleasure and profit." "'Oh, no, no,' replied my uncle, with great animation. "'We would not disturb anyone for the world, Monsieur Fridrikson. Still, I thank you with all my heart. The company of such a talented man would have been very serviceable, but the duties of your profession—' I am glad to think that our host, in the innocence of his Icelandic soul, was blind to the transparent artifices of my uncle. "'I very much approve of your beginning with that volcano, Monsieur Liedenbrock. You will gather a harvest of interesting observations. But tell me, how do you expect to get to the peninsula of Snefell?' "'By sea, crossing the bay. That's the most direct way.' "'No doubt, but it is impossible.' "'Why?' "'Because we don't possess a single boat at Reykjavik.' You don't mean to say so. You will have to go by land, following the shore. It will be longer, but more interesting. Very well, then. And now I shall have to see about a guide. I have one to offer you. A safe, intelligent man. Yes, an inhabitant of that peninsula. He is an eiderdown hunter and very clever. He speaks Danish perfectly. When can I see him? Tomorrow, if you like. Why not today? because he won't be here till tomorrow. "'Tomorrow, then,' added my uncle with a sigh. This momentous conversation ended in a few minutes with warm acknowledgments paid by the German to the Icelandic professor. At this dinner my uncle had just elicited important facts, amongst others the history of Sagnesum, the reason of the mysterious document, that his host would not accompany him in his expedition and that the very next day a guide would be waiting upon him. End of chapter 10
Chapter 11 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mellison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 A Guide Found to the Center of the Earth. In the evening, I took a short walk on the beach and returned at night to my plank bed, where I slept soundly all night. When I awoke, I heard my uncle talking at a great rate in the next room. I immediately dressed and joined him. He was conversing in the Danish language with a tall man of robust build. This fine fellow must have been possessed of great strength. His eyes, set in a large and ingenuous face, seemed to me very intelligent. They were of a dreamy sea-blue. Long hair, which would have been called red even in England, fell in long meshes upon his broad shoulders. The movements of this native were lithe and supple, but he made little use of his arms in speaking, like a man who knew nothing or cared nothing about the language of gestures. His whole appearance bespoke perfect calmness and self-possession, not indolence but tranquillity. It was felt at once that he would be beholden to nobody, that he worked for his own convenience, and that nothing in this world could astonish or disturb his philosophic calmness. I caught the shades of this Icelander's character by the way in which he listened to the impassioned flow of words which fell from the professor. He stood with arms crossed, perfectly unmoved by my uncle's incessant gesticulations. A negative was expressed by a slow movement of the head from left to right, an affirmative by a slight bend, so slight that his long hair scarcely moved. He carried economy of motion even to parsimony. Certainly I should never have dreamt in looking at this man that he was a hunter. He did not look likely to frighten his game, nor did he seem as if he would even get near it. But the mystery was explained when Monsieur Fridrikson informed me that this tranquil personage was only a hunter of the eider duck, whose under-plumage constitutes the chief wealth of the island. This is the celebrated eider-down, and it requires no great rapidity of movement to get it. Early in the summer, the female, a very pretty bird, goes to build her nest among the rocks of the fjords with which the coast is fringed. After building the nest, she feathers it with down plucked from her own breast. Immediately the hunter, or rather the trader, comes and robs the nest, and the female recommences her work. This goes on as long as she has any down left. When she has stripped herself bare, the male takes his turn to pluck himself. But as the coarse and hard plumage of the male has no commercial value, the hunter does not take the trouble to rob the nest of this. The female, therefore, lays her eggs in the spoils of her mate, the young are hatched, and next year the harvest begins again. Now, as the eider-duck does not select steep cliffs for her nest, but rather the smooth terraced rocks which slope to the sea, the Icelandic hunter might exercise his calling without any inconvenient exertion. He was a farmer who was not obliged either to sow or reap his harvest, but merely to gather it in. This grave, phlegmatic, and silent individual was called Hans Bielka, and he came recommended by Monsieur Fridrikson. He was our future guide. His manners were a singular contrast with my uncle's. Nevertheless, they soon came to understand each other. Neither looked at the amount of the payment. The one was ready to accept whatever was offered. The other was ready to give whatever was demanded. Never was bargain more readily concluded. 
The result of the treaty was that Hans engaged on his part to conduct us to the village of Stapi, on the south shore of the Snaffel Peninsula, at the very foot of the volcano. By land this would be about twenty-two miles, to be done, said my uncle, in two days. But when he learnt that the Danish mile was twenty-four thousand feet long, he was obliged to modify his calculations and allow seven or eight days for the march. Four horses were to be placed at our disposal two to carry him and me, two for the baggage. Hans, as was his custom, would go on foot. He knew all that part of the coast perfectly, and promised to take us the shortest way. His engagement was not to terminate with our arrival at Stapi. He was to continue in my uncle's service for the whole period of his scientific researches, for the remuneration of three Ricksdales a week, about twelve shillings but it was an express article of the covenant that his wages should be counted out to him every Saturday at six o'clock in the evening, which, according to him, was one indispensable part of the engagement. The start was fixed for the 16th of June. My uncle wanted to pay the hunter a portion in advance, but he refused with one word. "'After,' he said. "'After,' said the professor, from my edification. The treaty concluded— Hans silently withdrew. "'A famous fellow!' cried my uncle. "'But he little thinks of the marvellous part he has to play in the future.' "'So he is to go with us as far as—' "'As far as the centre of the earth, Axel.' Forty-eight hours were left before our departure. To my great regret I had to employ them in preparations, for all our ingenuity was required to pack every article to the best advantage. Instruments here, arms there, tools in this package, provisions in that, four sets of packages in all. The instruments were, one, an Eigel's centigrade thermometer, graduated up to 150 degrees, 302 degrees Fahrenheit, which seemed to me too much or too little. Too much if the internal heat was to rise so high, for in this case we should be baked, not enough to measure the temperature of springs or any matter in a state of fusion. Two, an aneroid barometer, to indicate extreme pressures of the atmosphere. An ordinary barometer would not have answered the purpose, as the pressure would increase during our descent to a point which the mercurial barometer would not register. 3. A chronometer, made by Boissonnet, Jr., of Geneva, accurately set to the meridian of Hamburg. 4. Two compasses, viz., a common compass and a dipping needle. 5. A night-glass. 6. Two of Rumkorff's apparatus, which, by means of an electric current, supplied a safe and handy portable light. The arms consisted of two Purdy's rifles and two brace of pistols. But what did we want arms for? We had neither savages nor wild beasts to fear, I supposed. But my uncle seemed to believe in his arsenal as in his instruments and more especially in a considerable quantity of gun-cotton, which is unaffected by moisture, and the explosive force of which exceeds that of gunpowder. The tools comprised two pickaxes, two spades, a silk rope-ladder, three iron-tipped sticks, a hatchet, a hammer, a dozen wedges and iron spikes, and a long knotted rope. Now this was a large load, for the ladder was three hundred feet long. And there were provisions, too. This was not a large parcel, 
but it was comforting to know that of essence of beef and biscuits there were six months' consumption. Spirits were the only liquid, and of water we took none. But we had flasks, and my uncle depended on springs from which to fill them. Whatever objections I hazarded as to their quality, temperature, or even absence, remained ineffectual. To complete the exact inventory of all our travelling accompaniments, I must not forget a pocket medicine chest, containing blunt scissors, splints for broken limbs, a piece of tape of unbleached linen, bandages and compresses, lint, a lancet for bleeding, all dreadful articles to take with one. Then there was a row of phials containing dextrine, alcoholic ether, liquid acetate of lead, vinegar, and ammonia drugs which afforded me no comfort. Finally, all the articles needful to supply Rumkorff's apparatus. My uncle did not forget a supply of tobacco, coarse-grained powder, and amadou, or a leather belt in which he carried a sufficient quantity of gold, silver, and paper money. Six pairs of boots and shoes, made waterproof with a composition of India rubber and naphtha, were packed amongst the tools. "'Clothed, shod, and equipped like this,' said my uncle, "'there is no telling how far we may go.' The fourteenth was wholly spent in arranging all our different articles. In the evening we dined with Baron Tramps, the mayor of Reykjavik and Dr. Hjaltalen, the first medical man of the place, being of the party. Monsieur Fridrikson was not there. I learned afterwards that he and the governor disagreed upon some question of administration, and did not speak to each other. I therefore knew not a single word of all that was said at this semi-official dinner, but I could not help noticing that my uncle talked the whole time. On the fifteenth our preparations were all made. Our host gave the professor very great pleasure by presenting him with a map of Iceland far more complete than that of Henderson. It was the map of Monsieur Olaf Nicholas Olsen, in the proportion of one to four hundred eighty thousand of the actual size of the island, and published by the Icelandic Literary Society. It was a precious document for a mineralogist. Our last evening was spent in intimate conversation with Monsieur Fridrikson, with whom I felt the liveliest sympathy. Then, after the talk, succeeded for me at any rate a disturbed and restless night. At five in the morning I was awoke by the neighing and pawing of four horses under my window. I dressed hastily and came down into the street. Hans was finishing our packing, almost as it were without moving a limb, and yet he did his work cleverly. My uncle made more noise than execution, and the guide seemed to pay very little attention to his energetic directions. At six o'clock our preparations were over. Monsieur Fridrikson shook hands with us. My uncle thanked him heartily for his extreme kindness. I constructed a few fine Latin sentences to express my cordial farewell. Then we bestrode our steeds, and with his last adieu, Monsieur Fredrickson treated me to a line of Virgil eminently applicable to such uncertain wanderers as we were likely to be. Et quacumque viam didant fortuna sequamur. The river fortune clears away thither our ready footsteps stray. End of chapter 11「Of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 A Barren Land We had started under a sky overcast but calm. There was no fear of heat, none of disastrous rain. It was just the weather for tourists. The pleasure of riding on horseback over an unknown country made me easy to be pleased at our first start. I threw myself wholly into the pleasure of the trip, and enjoyed the feeling of freedom and satisfied desire. I was beginning to take a real share in the enterprise. Besides, I said to myself, where's the risk? Here we are traveling all through a most interesting country. We are about to climb a very remarkable mountain. At the worst, we are going to scramble down an extinct crater. It is evident that Sacknessum did nothing more than this. As for a passage leading to the center of the globe, it is mere rubbish, perfectly impossible. Very well, then. Let us get all the good we can out of this expedition, and don't let us haggle about the chances." This reasoning having settled my mind, we got out of Reykjavik. Hans moved steadily on, keeping ahead of us at an even, smooth and rapid pace. The baggage-horses followed him without giving any trouble. Then came my uncle and myself, looking not so very ill-mounted on our small but hardy animals. Iceland is one of the largest islands in Europe. Its surface is fourteen thousand square miles, and it contains but sixteen thousand inhabitants. Geographers have divided it into four quarters, and we were crossing diagonally the southwest quarter, called the Sudvester Fjordung. On leaving Reykjavik, Hans took us by the seashore. We passed lean pastures which were trying very hard, but in vain, to look green. The yellow came out best. The rugged peaks of the trachyte rocks presented faint outlines on the eastern horizon. At times a few patches of snow, concentrating the vague light, glittered upon the slopes of the distant mountains. Certain peaks, boldly uprising, passed through the gray clouds and reappeared above the moving mists, like breakers emerging in the heavens. Often these chains of barren rocks made a dip towards the sea, and encroached upon the scanty pasturage. But there was always enough room to pass. Besides, our horses instinctively chose the easiest places without ever slackening their pace. My uncle was refused even the satisfaction of stirring up his beast with whip or voice. He had no excuse for being impatient. I could not help smiling to see so tall a man on so small a pony, and, as his long legs nearly touched the ground, he looked like a six-legged centaur. "'Good horse! Good horse!' he kept saying. "'You will see, Axel, that there is no more sagacious animal than the Icelandic horse. He is stopped by neither snow nor storm, nor impassable roads, nor rocks, glaciers, or anything. He is courageous, sober, and sure-footed. He never makes a false step, never shies. If there is a river or fjord to cross, and we shall meet with many, you will see him plunge in at once, just as if he were amphibious, and gain the opposite bank. But we must not hurry him. We must let him have his way, and we shall get on at the rate of thirty miles a day. We may, but how about our guide? Oh, never mind him. People like him get over the ground without a thought. There is so little action in this man that he will never get tired. And besides, if he wants it, he shall have my horse. I shall get cramped if I don't have a little action. The arms are all right, but the legs want exercise." We were advancing at a rapid pace. 
the country was already almost a desert. Here and there was a lonely farm, called a boer, built either of wood or of sods or of pieces of lava, looking like a poor beggar by the wayside. These ruinous huts seemed to solicit charity from passers-by, and on very small provocation we should have given alms for the relief of the poor inmates. In this country there were no roads and paths, and the poor vegetation, however slow, would soon efface the rare traveller's footsteps. Yet this part of the province, at a very small distance from the capital, is reckoned among the inhabited and cultivated portions of Iceland. What, then, must other tracts be, more desert than this desert? In the first half-mile we had not seen one farmer standing before his cabin door, nor one shepherd tending a flock less wild than himself, nothing but a few cows and sheep left to themselves. What, then, would be those convulsed regions upon which we were advancing, regions subject to the dire phenomena of eruptions, the offspring of volcanic explosions and subterranean convulsions? We were to know them before long, but on consulting Olsen's map I saw that they would be avoided by winding along the seashore. In fact, the great plutonic action is confined to the central portion of the island. There, rocks of the Trappian and volcanic class, including trachyte, basalt, and tufts, and agglomerates associated with streams of lava, have made this a land of supernatural horrors. I had no idea of the spectacle which was awaiting us in the peninsula of Snefell, where these ruins of a fiery nature have formed a frightful chaos. In two hours from Reykjavik we arrived at the burg of Gafuns, called Alkirkia, or Principal Church. There was nothing remarkable here but a few houses, scarcely enough for a German hamlet. Hans stopped here half an hour. He shared with us our frugal breakfast, answering my uncle's questions about the road and our resting-place that night with merely yes or no, except when he said, Gardar. I consulted the map to see where Gardar was. I saw there was a small town of that name on the banks of the Hjalfjord, four miles from Reykjavik. I showed it to my uncle. Four miles only? he exclaimed. Four miles out of twenty-eight! What a nice little walk! He was about to make an observation to the guide, who, without answering, resumed his place at the head, and went on his way. Three hours later, still treading on the colorless grass of the pasture-land, we had to work round the Kala Fjord, a longer way but an easier one than crossing that inlet. We soon entered into a pinkstower, or parish, called Eulberg, from whose steeple twelve o'clock would have struck, if Icelandic churches were rich enough to possess clocks. But they are like the parishioners who have no watches, and do without. There our horses were baited. Then, taking the narrow path to left between a chain of hills and the sea, they carried us to our next stage, the Alkirkia of Brantar, and one mile farther on to Saurbor Anexia, a chapel of ease built on the south shore of the Valfjord. It was now four o'clock, and we had gone four Icelandic miles, or twenty-four English miles. In that place the fjord was at least three English miles wide. The waves rolled with a rushing din upon the sharp-pointed rocks. This inlet was confined between walls of rock, precipices crowned by sharp peaks two thousand feet high, and remarkable for the brown strata which separated the beds of reddish tuff. However much I might respect the intelligence of our quadrupeds, 
I hardly cared to put it to the test by trusting myself to it on horseback across an arm of the sea. If they are as intelligent as they are said to be, I thought, they won't try it. In any case, I will tax my intelligence to direct theirs. But my uncle would not wait. He spurred on to the edge. His steed lowered his head to examine the nearest waves and stopped. My uncle, who had an instinct of his own, too, applied pressure, and was again refused by the animal significantly shaking his head. Then followed strong language and the whip. But the brute answered these arguments with kicks and endeavors to throw his rider. At last the clever little pony, with a bend of his knees, started from under the professor's legs, and left him standing upon two boulders on the shore just like the Colossus of Rhodes. "'Confounded brute!' cried the unhorsed horseman, suddenly degraded into a pedestrian, just as ashamed as a cavalry officer degraded to a foot-soldier. "'Farya!' said the guide, touching his shoulder. "'What? A boat?' "'Dare,' replied Hans, pointing to one. "'Yes,' I cried, "'there is a boat.' "'Why did you not say so, then? Well, let us go on.' "'Tidvatten,' said the guide. "'What is he saying?' "'He says tide,' said my uncle, translating the Danish word. "'No doubt we must wait for the tide.' "'For Bida,' said my uncle. "'Ja,' replied Hans. My uncle stamped with his foot, while the horses went on to the boat. I perfectly understood the necessity of abiding a particular moment of the tide to undertake the crossing of the fjord, when, the sea having reached its greatest height, it should be slack water. Then the ebb and flow have no sensible effect, and the boat does not risk being carried either to the bottom or out to sea. That favorable moment arrived only with six o'clock when my uncle, myself, the guide, two other passengers, and the four horses, trusted ourselves to a somewhat fragile raft. Accustomed as I was to the swift and sure steamers on the Elbe, I found the oars of the rowers rather a slow means of propulsion. It took us more than an hour to cross the fjord, but the passage was effected without any mishap. In another half-hour we had reached the Alkirkia of Gardar. End of chapter 12。Chapter 13 Hospitality under the Arctic Circle It ought to have been night-time, but under the sixty-fifth parallel there was nothing surprising in the nocturnal polar light. In Iceland, during the months of June and July, the sun does not set. But the temperature was much lower. I was cold, and more hungry than cold. Welcome was the sight of the boer, which was hospitality open to receive us. It was a peasant's house, but in point of hospitality it was equal to a king's. On our arrival the master came with outstretched hands, and without more ceremony he beckoned us to follow him. To accompany him down the long narrow dark passage would have been impossible. Therefore we followed as he bid us. The building was constructed of roughly squared timbers, with rooms on both sides, four in number, all opening out into the one passage. 
These were the kitchen, the weaving shop, the bed stofa or family sleeping room, and the visitor's room, which was the best of all. My uncle, whose height had not been thought of in building the house, of course hit his head several times against the beams that projected from the ceilings. We were introduced into our apartment, a large room with a floor of earth stamped down hard, and lighted by a window, the panes of which were formed of sheep's bladder, not admitting too much light. The sleeping accommodation consisted of dry litter thrown into two wooden frames painted red and ornamented with Icelandic sentences. I was hardly expecting so much comfort. The only discomfort proceeded from the strong odor of dried fish, hung meat, and sour milk, of which my nose made bitter complaints. When we had laid aside our traveling wraps, the voice of the host was heard inviting us to the kitchen, the only room where a fire was lighted even in the severest cold. My uncle lost no time in obeying the friendly call, nor was I slack in following. The kitchen chimney was constructed on the ancient pattern. In the middle of the room was a stone for a hearth, over it in the roof a hole to let the smoke escape. The kitchen was also a dining-room. At our entrance the host, as if he had never seen us, greeted us with the word Selvertu which means, be happy, and came and kissed us on the cheek. After him his wife pronounced the same words, accompanied with the same ceremonial. Then the two placing their hands upon their hearts inclined profoundly before us. I hasten to inform the reader that this Icelandic lady was the mother of nineteen children, all big and little, swarming in the midst of the dense wreaths of smoke with which the fire on the hearth filled the chamber. Every moment I noticed a fair-haired and rather melancholy face peeping out of the rolling volumes of smoke. They were perfect cluster of unwashed angels. My uncle and I treated this little tribe with kindness, and in a very short time we each had three or four of these brats on our shoulders, as many on our laps and the rest between our knees. Those who could speak kept repeating Salvertu in every conceivable tone. Those that could not speak made up for that want by shrill cries. This concert was brought to a close by the announcement of dinner. At that moment our hunter returned, who had been seeing his horses provided for. That is to say, he had economically let them loose in the fields, where the poor beasts had to content themselves with the scanty moss they could pull off the rocks, and a few meager seaweeds, and the next day they would not fail to come of themselves and resume the labors of the previous day. Salvertu, said Hans. Then calmly, automatically, and dispassionately he kissed the host, the hostess, and their nineteen children. This ceremony over, we sat at table, twenty-four in number, and therefore one upon another. The luckiest had only two urchins upon their knees. But silence reigned in all this little world at the arrival of the soup, and the national taciturnity resumed its empire even over the children. The host served out to us a soup made of lichen, and by no means unpleasant, then an immense piece of dried fish floating in butter rancid with twenty years' keeping, and therefore, according to Icelandic gastronomy, much preferable to fresh butter. Along with this we had sky, a sort of clotted milk, with biscuits and a liquid prepared from juniper berries. For beverage we had a thin milk mixed with water, called in this country blanda. It is not for me to decide whether this diet is wholesome or not. 
All I can say is that I was desperately hungry, and that at dessert I swaddled to the very last gulp of a thick broth made from buckwheat. As soon as the meal was over, the children disappeared, and their elders gathered round the peat-fire, which also burnt such miscellaneous fuel as briars, cow-dung, and fish-bones. After this little pinch of warmth the different groups retired to their respective rooms. Our hostess hospitably offered us her assistance in undressing, according to Icelandic usage. But on our gracefully declining she insisted no longer, and I was able at last to curl myself up in my mossy bed. At five next morning we bade our host farewell, my uncle with difficulty persuading him to accept a proper remuneration, and Hans signaled the start. At a hundred yards from Gardar the soil began to change its aspect. It became boggy and less favorable to progress. On our right the chain of mountains was indefinitely prolonged, like an immense system of natural fortifications, of which we were following the counterscarp or lesser steep. Often we were met by streams, which we had to ford with great care not to wet our packages. The desert became wider and more hideous, yet from time to time we seemed to descry a human figure that fled at our approach, sometimes a sharp turn would bring us suddenly within a short distance of one of these spectres, and I was filled with loathing at the sight of a huge deformed head, the skin shining and hairless, and repulsive sores visible through the gaps in the poor creature's wretched rags. The unhappy being forbore to approach us and offer his misshapen hand. He fled away, but not before Hans had saluted him with the customary Selvertu. Spatelsk, said he. A leper, my uncle repeated. This word produced a repulsive effect. The horrible disease of leprosy is too common in Iceland. It is not contagious, but hereditary, and lepers are forbidden to marry. These apparitions were not cheerful and did not throw any charm over the less and less attractive landscapes. The last tufts of grass had disappeared from beneath our feet. Not a tree was to be seen, unless we except a few dwarf birches as low as brushwood. Not an animal but a few wandering ponies that their owners would not feed. Sometimes we could see a hawk balancing himself on his wings under the gray cloud, and then darting away south with rapid flight. I felt melancholy under this savage aspect of nature, and my thoughts went away to the cheerful scenes I had left in the far south. We had to cross a few narrow fjords, and at last quite a wide gulf. The tide, then high, allowed us to pass over without delay, and to reach the hamlet of Aftanes one mile beyond. That evening, after having forded two rivers full of trout and pike, called Alpha and Hedda, we were obliged to spend the night in a deserted building worthy to be haunted by all the elfins of Scandinavia. The Ice King certainly held court here, and gave us all night long samples of what he could do. No particular event marked the next day. Bogs, dead levels, melancholy desert tracks wherever we travelled. By nightfall we had accomplished half our journey, and we lay at Krosopt. On the nineteenth of June, for about a mile, that is, an Icelandic mile, we walked upon hardened lava. This ground is called in the country Ron. The writhen surface presented the appearance of distorted, twisted cables, sometimes stretched in length, sometimes contorted together. 
an immense torrent, once liquid, now solid, ran from the nearest mountains, now extinct volcanoes, but the ruins around revealed the violence of the past eruptions. Yet here and there were a few jets of steam from hot springs. We had no time to watch these phenomena. We had to proceed on our way. Soon at the foot of the mountains the boggy land reappeared, intersected by little lakes. Our route now lay westward. We had turned the great bay of Faxa, and the twin peaks of Snafel rose white into the cloudy sky at the distance of at least five miles. The horses did their duty well. No difficulty stopped them in their steady career. I was getting tired, but my uncle was as firm and straight as he was at our first start. I could not help admiring his persistency, as well as the hunters, who treated our expedition like a mere promenade. June 20. At 6 p.m. we reached Budir, a village on the seashore, and the guide there claiming his due, my uncle settled with him. It was Han's own family, that is, his uncles and cousins who gave us hospitality. We were kindly received, and without taxing too much the goodness of these folks, I would willingly have tarried here to recruit after my fatigues. But my uncle, who wanted no recruiting, would not hear of it and the next morning we had to bestride our beasts again. The soil told of the neighborhood of the mountain, whose granite foundations rose from the earth like the knotted roots of some huge oak. We were rounding the immense base of the volcano. The professor hardly took his eyes off it. He tossed up his arms and seemed to defy it, and to declare, "'There stands the giant that I shall conquer!' After about four hours' walking, the horses stopped of their own accord at the door of the priest's house at Stoppi. End of chapter 13、chapter、14 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 but arctics can be inhospitable too. Stoppi is a village consisting of about thirty huts, built of lava at the south side of the base of the volcano. It extends along the inner edge of a small fjord, enclosed between basaltic walls of the strangest construction. Basalt is a brownish rock of igneous origin. It assumes regular forms, the arrangement of which is often very surprising. Here nature had done her work geometrically, with square and compass and plummet. Everywhere else her art consists alone in throwing down huge masses together in disorder. You see cones imperfectly formed, irregular pyramids, with a fantastic disarrangement of lines. But here, as if to exhibit an example of regularity, though in advance of the very earliest architects, she has created a severely simple order of architecture, never surpassed either by the splendors of Babylon or the wonders of Greece. I had heard of the giant's causeway in Ireland, and Fingal's cave in Staffa, one of the Hebrides, but I had never yet seen a basaltic formation. At Stapi I beheld this phenomenon in all its beauty. The wall that confined the fjord, like all the coast of the peninsula, was composed of a series of vertical columns thirty feet high. These straight shafts, of fair proportions, supported an architrave of horizontal slabs, the overhanging portion of which formed a semi-arch over the sea. At intervals, under this natural shelter, 
there spread out vaulted entrances in beautiful curves, into which the waves came dashing with foam and spray. A few shafts of basalt, torn from their hold by the fury of tempests, lay along the soil like remains of an ancient temple, in ruins forever fresh and over which centuries passed without leaving a trace of age upon them. This was our last stage upon the earth. Hans had exhibited great intelligence, and it gave me some little comfort to think then that he was not going to leave us. On arriving at the door of the rector's house, which was not different from the others, I saw a man shoeing a horse, hammer in hand, with a leathern apron on. Selvertu, said the hunter. Goddag, said the blacksmith, in good Danish. Kirkerherde, said Hans, turning around to my uncle. The rector, repeated the professor. It seems, Axel, that this good man is the rector. Our guide in the meanwhile was making the Kirkerherde aware of the position of things. When the latter, suspending his labors for a moment, uttered a sound no doubt understood between horses and farriers, and immediately a tall and ugly hag appeared from the hut. She must have been six feet at the least. I was in great alarm lest she should treat me to the Icelandic kiss. But there was no occasion to fear, nor did she do the honors at all too gracefully. The visitor's room seemed to me the worst in the whole cabin. It was close, dirty, and evil-smelling. But we had to be content. The rector did not go in for antique hospitality. Very far from it. Before the day was over, I saw that we had to do with a blacksmith, a fisherman, a hunter, a joiner, but not at all with a minister of the gospel. To be sure, it was a weekday. Perhaps on a Sunday he made amends. I don't mean to say anything against these poor priests, who, after all, are very wretched. They receive from the Danish government a ridiculously small pittance, and they get from the parish the fourth part of the tithe, which does not come to sixty marks a year, about four pounds. Hence the necessity to work for their livelihood. But after fishing, hunting, and shoeing horses for any length of time, one soon gets into the ways and manners of fishermen, hunters, and farriers, and other rather crude and uncultivated people. And that evening I found out that temperance was not among the virtues that distinguished my host. My uncle soon discovered what sort of a man he had to do with. Instead of a good and learned man, he found a rude and coarse peasant. He therefore resolved to commence the grand expedition at once, and to leave this inhospitable parsonage. He cared nothing about fatigue, and resolved to spend some days upon the mountain. The preparations for our departure were therefore made the very day after our arrival at Stapi. Hans hired the services of three Icelanders to do the duty of the horses in the transport of the burdens, but as soon as we had arrived at the crater, these natives were to turn back and leave us to our own devices. This was to be clearly understood. My uncle now took the opportunity to explain to Hans that it was his intention to explore the interior of the volcano to its farthest limits. Hans merely nodded. There or elsewhere, down in the bowels of the earth, or anywhere on the surface, all was alike to him. For my own part, the incidents of the journey had hitherto kept me amused, and made me forgetful of coming evils but now my fears again were beginning to get the better of me. But what could I do? The place to resist the professor would have been Hamburg, not the foot of Snaffel. One thought, above all others, harassed and alarmed me. It was one calculated to shake firmer nerves than mine. 
Now, thought I, here we are, about to climb Snaffel. Very good. We will explore the crater. Very good, too. Others have done as much without dying for it. But that is not all. If there is a way to penetrate into the very bowels of the island, if that ill-advised Sacknessum has told a true tale, we shall lose our way amidst the deep subterranean passages of this volcano. Now there is no proof that Snaffel is extinct. Who can assure us that an eruption is not brewing at this very moment? Does it follow that because the monster has slept since 1229 he must therefore never awake again? And if he wakes up presently, where shall we be? It was worth while debating this question, and I did debate it. I could not sleep for dreaming about eruptions. Now the part of the ejected scoriae and ashes seemed to my mind a very rough one to act. So at last, when I could hold out no longer, I resolved to lay the case before my uncle, as prudently and as cautiously as possible, just under the form of an almost impossible hypothesis. I went to him. I communicated my fears to him, and drew back a step to give him room for the explosion which I knew must follow. But I was mistaken. "'I was thinking of that,' he replied with great simplicity. What could those words mean? Was he actually going to listen to reason? Was he contemplating the abandonment of his plans? This was too good to be true. After a few moments' silence, during which I dared not question him, he resumed. I was thinking of that. Ever since we arrived at Stoppi, I have been occupied with the important question you have just opened, for we must not be guilty of imprudence. No, indeed, I replied with forcible emphasis. For six hundred years Snaffel has been dumb, but he may speak again. Now eruptions are always preceded by certain well-known phenomena. I have therefore examined the natives, I have studied external appearances, and I can assure you, Axel, that there will be no eruption." At this positive affirmation I stood amazed and speechless. "'You don't doubt my word?' said my uncle. "'Well, follow me.' I obeyed like an automaton. Coming out from the priest's house, the professor took a straight road, which, through an opening in the basaltic wall, led away from the sea. We were soon in the open country, if one may give that name to a vast extent of mounds of volcanic products. This tract seemed crushed under a rain of enormous ejected rocks of trap, basalt, granite, and all kinds of igneous rocks. Here and there I could see puffs and jets of steam curling up into the air, called in Icelandic Reykjör, issuing from thermal springs and indicating by their motion the volcanic energy underneath. This seemed to justify my fears but I fell from the height of my new-born hopes when my uncle said, "'You see all these volumes of steam, Axel? Well, they demonstrate that we have nothing to fear from the fury of a volcanic eruption.' "'Am I to believe that?' I cried. "'Understand this clearly,' added the professor. "'At the approach of an eruption, these jets would redouble their activity, but disappear altogether during the period of the eruption. For the elastic fluids, being no longer under pressure, go off by way of the crater instead of escaping by their usual passages through the fissures in the soil. Therefore, if these vapours remain in their usual condition, if they display no augmentation of force, and if you add to this the observation that the wind and rain are not ceasing and being replaced by a still and heavy atmosphere, 
then you may affirm that no eruption is preparing. But no more, that is sufficient. When science has uttered her voice, let babblers hold their peace. I returned to the parsonage, very crestfallen. My uncle had beaten me with the weapons of science. Still, I had one hope left, and this was that when we had reached the bottom of the crater it would be impossible, for want of a passage, to go deeper, in spite of all the sacnusums in Iceland. I spent the whole night in one constant nightmare, in the heart of a volcano, and from the deepest depths of the earth I saw myself tossed up amongst the interplanetary spaces under the form of an eruptive rock. The next day, June 23rd, Hans was awaiting us with his companions carrying provisions, tools, and instruments. Two iron-pointed sticks, two rifles, and two shot-belts were for my uncle and myself. Hans, as a cautious man, had added to our luggage a leathern bottle full of water, which, with that in our flasks, would ensure us a supply of water for eight days. It was nine in the morning. The priest and his tall Megira were awaiting us at the door. We supposed they were standing there to bid us a kind farewell, but the farewell was put in the unexpected form of a heavy bill, in which everything was charged, even to the very air we breathed in the pastoral house infected as it was. This worthy couple were fleecing us just as a Swiss innkeeper might have done, and estimated their imperfect hospitality at the highest price. My uncle paid without a remark. A man who is starting for the center of the earth need not be particular about a few ricks dollars. This point being settled, Hans gave the signal, and we soon left Stoppy behind us. End of chapter 14《Chapter Fifteen of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen Snuffell at Last Snuffell is five thousand feet high. Its double cone forms the limit of a trachytic belt which stands out distinctly in the mountain system of the island. From our starting point, we could see the two peaks boldly projected against the dark gray sky. I could see an enormous cap of snow coming low down upon the giant's brow. We walked in single file, headed by the hunter, who ascended by narrow tracks, where two could not have gone abreast. There was, therefore, no room for conversation. After we had passed the basaltic wall of the fjord of Stapi, we passed over a vegetable fibrous peat bog left from the ancient vegetation of this peninsula. The vast quantity of this unworked fuel would be sufficient to warm the whole population of Iceland for a century. This vast turbary, measured in certain ravines, had in many places a depth of seventy feet, and presented layers of carbonized remains of vegetation alternating with thinner layers of tufaceous pumice. As a true nephew of the Professor Liedenbrock, and in spite of my dismal prospects, I could not help observing with interest the mineralogical curiosities which lay about me as in a vast museum, and I constructed for myself a complete geological account of Iceland. This most curious island has evidently been projected from the bottom of the sea at a comparatively recent date. Possibly it may still be subject to gradual elevation. If this is the case, its origin may well be attributed to subterranean fires. 
Therefore, in this case, the theory of Sir Humphrey Davy, Sacknessum's document, and my uncle's theories would all go off in smoke. This hypothesis led me to examine with more attention the appearance of the surface, and I soon arrived at a conclusion as to the nature of the forces which presided at its birth. Iceland, which is entirely devoid of alluvial soil, is wholly composed of volcanic tufa, that is to say, an agglomeration of porous rocks and stones. Before the volcanoes broke out, it consisted of trap-rocks slowly upraised to the level of the sea by the action of central forces. The internal fires had not yet forced their way through. But at a later period, a wide chasm formed diagonally from southwest to northeast, through which was gradually forced out the trachyte which was to form a mountain chain. No violence accompanied this change. The matter thrown out was in vast quantities, and the liquid material oozing out from the abysses of the earth slowly spread in extensive plains or in hillocky masses. To this period belonged the felspar, cyanites, and porphyries. But with the help of this outflow the thickness of the crust of the island increased materially, and therefore also its powers of resistance. It may easily be conceived what vast quantities of elastic gases, what masses of molten matter accumulated beneath its solid surface whilst no exit was practicable after the cooling of the trachytic crust. Therefore a time would come when the elastic and explosive forces of the imprisoned gases would upheave this ponderous cover, and drive out for themselves openings through tall chimneys. Hence then the volcano would distend and lift up the crust, and then burst through a crater suddenly formed at the summit or thinnest part of the volcano. To the eruption succeeded other volcanic phenomena. Through the outlets now made, first escaped the ejected basalt of which the plain we had just left presented such marvellous specimens. We were moving over grey rocks of dense and massive formation, which in cooling had formed into hexagonal prisms. Everywhere around us we saw truncated cones, formerly so many fiery mouths. After the exhaustion of the basalt, the volcano, the power of which grew by the extinction of the lesser craters, supplied an egress to lava, ashes, and scoriae, of which I could see lengthened screes streaming down the sides of the mountain like flowing hair. Such was the succession of phenomena which produced Iceland, all arising from the action of internal fire. And to suppose that the mass within did not still exist in a state of liquid incandescence was absurd and nothing could surpass the absurdity of fancying that it was possible to reach the earth's centre. So I felt a little comforted as we advanced to the assault of Snaffel. The way was growing more and more arduous, the ascent steeper and steeper, the loose fragments of rock trembled beneath us, and the utmost care was needed to avoid dangerous falls. Hans went on as quietly as if he were on level ground. Sometimes he disappeared altogether behind the huge blocks, then a shrill whistle would direct us on our way to him. Sometimes he would halt, pick up a few bits of stone, build them up into a recognizable form, and thus made landmarks to guide us in our way back. A very wise precaution in itself, but as things turned out, quite useless. Three hours' fatiguing march had only brought us to the base of the mountain. There Hans bid us come to a halt, and a hasty breakfast was served out. My uncle swallowed two mouthfuls at a time to get on faster. But whether he liked it or not, 
this was a rest as well as a breakfast hour, and he had to wait till it pleased our guide to move on, which came to pass in an hour. The three Icelanders, just as taciturn as their comrade the hunter, never spoke, and ate their breakfasts in silence. We were now beginning to scale the steep sides of Snaefell. Its snowy summit, by an optical illusion not unfrequent in mountains, seemed close to us, and yet how many weary hours it took to reach it! The stones, adhering by no soil or fibrous roots of vegetation, rolled away from under our feet, and rushed down the precipice below with the swiftness of an avalanche. At some places the flanks of the mountain formed an angle with the horizon of at least thirty-six degrees. It was impossible to climb them, and these stony cliffs had to be tacked round, not without great difficulty. Then we helped each other with our sticks. I must admit that my uncle kept as close to me as he could. He never lost sight of me, and in many straits his arm furnished me with a powerful support. He himself seemed to possess an instinct for equilibrium, for he never stumbled. The Icelanders, though burdened with our loads, climbed with the agility of mountaineers. To judge by the distant appearance of the summit of Snavel, it would have seemed too steep to ascend on our side. Fortunately, after an hour of fatigue and athletic exercises, in the midst of the vast surface of snow presented by the hollow between the two peaks, a kind of staircase appeared unexpectedly which greatly facilitated our ascent. It was formed by one of those torrents of stones flung up by the eruptions, called Sting by the Icelanders. If this torrent had not been arrested in its fall by the formation of the sides of the mountain, it would have gone on to the sea and formed more islands. Such as it was, it did us good service. The steepness increased, but these stone steps allowed us to rise with facility, and even with such rapidity that, having rested for a moment while my companions continued their ascent, I perceived them already reduced by distance to microscopic dimensions. At seven we had ascended the two thousand steps of this grand staircase, and we had attained a bulge in the mountain, a kind of bed on which rested the cone proper of the crater. Three thousand two hundred feet below us stretched the sea. We had passed the limit of perpetual snow, which, on account of the moisture of the climate, is at a greater elevation in Iceland than the high latitude would give reason to suppose. The cold was excessively keen. The wind was blowing violently. I was exhausted. The professor saw that my limbs were refusing to perform their office, and in spite of his impatience he decided on stopping. He therefore spoke to the hunter, who shook his head, saying, Offanfer. It seems we must go higher, said my uncle. Then he asked Hans for his reason. Mister, replied the guide. Ya, yeah, mister, said one of the Icelanders in a tone of alarm. What does that word mean? I asked uneasily. Look, said my uncle. I looked down upon the plain. An immense column of pulverized pumice, sand and dust was rising with a whirling circular motion like a waterspout. The wind was lashing it on to that side of Snaefell where we were holding on. This dense veil, hung across the sun, threw a deep shadow over the mountain. If that huge revolving pillar sloped down, it would involve us in its whirling eddies. This phenomenon, which is not unfrequent when the wind blows from the glaciers, is called in Icelandic mistur. Hostigt! Hostigt! cried our guide. 
Without knowing Danish, I understood at once that we must follow Hans at the top of our speed. He began to circle round the cone of the crater, but in a diagonal direction so as to facilitate our progress. Presently the dust-storm fell upon the mountain, which quivered under the shock. The loose stones, caught with the irresistible blasts of wind, flew about in a perfect hail as in an eruption. Happily we were on the opposite side and sheltered from all harm. But for the precaution of our guide, our mangled bodies, torn and pounded into fragments, would have been carried afar like the ruins hurled along by some unknown meteor. Yet Hans did not think it prudent to spend the night upon the sides of the cone. We continued our zigzag climb. The fifteen hundred remaining feet took us five hours to clear. The circuitous route, the diagonal and the countermarches, must have measured at least three leagues. I could stand it no longer. I was yielding to the effects of hunger and cold. The rarefied air scarcely gave play to the action of my lungs. At last, at eleven in the sunlight night, the summit of Snaffel was reached, and before going in for shelter into the crater, I had time to observe the midnight sun, at his lowest point gilding with his pale rays the island that slept at my feet. End of chapter 15Chapter 16 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Boldly Down the Crater Supper was rapidly devoured, and the little company housed themselves as best they could. The bed was hard, the shelter not very substantial, and our position an anxious one, at five thousand feet above the sea-level. Yet I slept particularly well. It was one of the best nights I had ever had, and I did not even dream. Next morning we awoke half-frozen by the sharp keen air, but with the light of a splendid sun. I rose from my granite bed and went out to enjoy the magnificent spectacle that lay unrolled before me. I stood on the very summit of the southernmost of Snaffel's peaks. The range of the eye extended over the whole island. By an optical law which obtains at all great heights, the shore seemed raised and the center depressed. It seemed as if one of Helbesmer's raised maps lay at my feet. I could see deep valleys intersecting each other in every direction, precipices like low walls, lakes reduced to ponds, rivers abbreviated into streams. On my right were numberless glaciers and innumerable peaks, some plumed with feathery clouds of smoke. The undulating surface of these endless mountains, crested with sheets of snow, reminded one of a stormy sea. If I looked westward, there the ocean lay spread out in all its magnificence, like a mere continuation of those flock-like summits. The eye could hardly tell where the snowy ridges ended and the foaming waves began. I was thus steeped in the marvellous ecstasy which all high summits develop in the mind, and now without giddiness, for I was beginning to be accustomed to the sublime aspects of nature. My dazzled eyes were bathed in the bright flood of the solar rays. I was forgetting where and who I was, to live the life of elves and sylphs, the fanciful creation of Scandinavian superstitions. 
I felt intoxicated with the sublime pleasure of lofty elevations, without thinking of the profound abysses into which I was shortly to be plunged. But I was brought back to the realities of things by the arrival of Hans and the professor, who joined me on the summit. My uncle pointed out to me in the far west a light steam or mist, a semblance of land, which bounded the distant horizon of waters. "'Greenland!' said he. "'Greenland!' I cried. "'Yes. We are only thirty-five leagues from it, and during thaws the white bears, borne by the ice-fields from the north, are carried even into Iceland. But never mind that. Here we are at the top of Snefell, and here are two peaks, one north and one south. Hans will tell us the name of that on which we are now standing.' The question being put, Hans replied, "'Skartaris.' My uncle shot a triumphant glance at me. "'Now for the crater!' he cried. The crater of Snefell resembled an inverted cone, the opening of which might be half a league in diameter. Its depth appeared to be about two thousand feet. Imagine the aspect of such a reservoir, brimful and running over with liquid fire amid the rolling thunder. The bottom of the funnel was about two hundred fifty feet in circuit, so that the gentle slope allowed its lower brim to be reached without much difficulty. Involuntarily I compared the whole crater to an enormous erected mortar, and the comparison put me in a terrible fright. "'What madness!' I thought, to go down into a mortar, perhaps a loaded mortar, to be shot up into the air at a moment's notice. But I did not try to back out of it. Hans with perfect coolness resumed the lead, and I followed him without a word. In order to facilitate the descent, Hans wound his way down the cone by a spiral path. Our route lay amidst eruptive rocks, some of which, shaken out of their loosened beds, rushed bounding down the abyss, and in their fall awoke echoes remarkable for their loud and well-defined sharpness. In certain parts of the cone there were glaciers. Here Hans advanced only with extreme precaution, sounding his way with his iron-pointed pole to discover any crevasses in it. At particularly dubious passages we were obliged to connect ourselves with each other by a long cord, in order that any man who missed his footing might be held up by his companions. This solid formation was prudent, but did not remove all danger. Yet, notwithstanding the difficulties of the descent, down steeps unknown to the guide, the journey was accomplished without accidents, except the loss of a coil of rope, which escaped from the hands of an Icelander and took the shortest way to the bottom of the abyss. At midday we arrived. I raised my head and saw straight above me the upper aperture of the cone, framing a bit of sky of very small circumference, but almost perfectly round. Just upon the edge appeared the snowy peak of Sarus, standing out sharp and clear against the endless space. At the bottom of the crater were three chimneys, through which, in its eruptions, Snefell had driven forth fire and lava from its central furnace. Each of these chimneys was a hundred feet in diameter. They gaped before us right in our path. I had not the courage to look down either of them, but Professor Liedenbrock had hastily surveyed all three. He was panting, running from one to the other, gesticulating and uttering incoherent expressions. Hans and his comrades, seated upon loose lava rocks, looked at him with as much wonder as they knew how to express, 
and perhaps taking him for an escaped lunatic. Suddenly my uncle uttered a cry. I thought his foot must have slipped and that he had fallen down one of the holes. But no, I saw him, with arms outstretched and legs straddling wide apart, erect before a granite rock that stood in the center of the crater, just like a pedestal made ready to receive a statue of Pluto. He stood like a man stupefied, but the stupefaction soon gave way to a delirious rapture. "'Axel! Axel!' he cried. "'Come! Come!' I ran. Hans and the Icelanders never stirred. "'Look!' cried the professor. And, sharing his astonishment, but I think not his joy, I read on the western face of the block, in runic characters, half moldered away with lapse of ages, this thrice-accursed name. "'Arnsactism!' replied my uncle. "'Do you yet doubt?' I made no answer, and I returned in silence to my lava seat in a state of utter speechless consternation. Here was crushing evidence. How long I remained plunged in agonizing reflections I cannot tell. All that I know is that on raising my head again I saw only my uncle and Hans at the bottom of the crater. The Icelanders had been dismissed, and they were now descending the outer slopes of Snaefell to return to Stapi. Hans slept peaceably at the foot of a rock, in a lava bed, where he had found a suitable couch for himself. But my uncle was pacing around the bottom of the crater like a wild beast in a cage. I had neither the wish nor the strength to rise, and following the guide's example I went off into an unhappy slumber, fancying I could hear ominous noises or feel tremblings within the recesses of the mountain. Thus the first night in the crater passed away. The next morning a gray, heavy, cloudy sky seemed to droop over the summit of the cone. I did not know this first from the appearances of nature, but I found it out by my uncle's impetuous wrath. I soon found out the cause, and hope dawned again in my heart. For this reason. Of the three ways open before us, one had been taken by Sacknesum. The indications of the learned Icelander hinted at in the cryptogram pointed to this fact that the shadow of Scartaris came to touch that particular way during the latter days of the month of June. That sharp peak might hence be considered as the gnomon of a vast sundial, the shadow projected from which, on a certain day, would point out the road to the center of the earth. Now no sun, no shadow, and therefore no guide. Here was June twenty-fifth. If the sun was clouded for six days we must postpone our visit till next year. My limited powers of description would fail were I to attempt a picture of the professor's angry impatience. The day wore on, and no shadow came to lay itself along the bottom of the crater. Hans did not move from the spot he had selected, yet he must be asking himself what we were waiting for, if he asked himself anything at all. My uncle spoke not a word to me. His gaze, ever directed upwards, was lost in the gray and misty space beyond. On the twenty-sixth nothing yet. Rain mingled with snow was falling all day long. Hans built a hut of pieces of lava. I felt a malicious pleasure in watching the thousand rills and cascades that came tumbling down the sides of the cone, and the deafening continuous din awakened by every stone against which they bounded. My uncle's rage knew no bounds. It was enough to irritate a meeker man than he, 
for it was foundering almost within the port. But heaven never sends unmixed grief, and for Professor Liedenbrock there was a satisfaction in store proportioned to his desperate anxieties. The next day the sky was again overcast, but on the twenty-ninth of June, the last day but one of the month, with the change of the moon came a change of weather. The sun poured a flood of light down the crater. Every hillock, every rock and stone, every projecting surface had its share of the beaming torrent, and threw its shadow on the ground. Amongst them all Scartaris laid down his sharp-pointed angular shadow which began to move slowly in the opposite direction to that of the radiant orb. My uncle turned too and followed it. At noon, being at its least extent, it came and softly fell upon the edge of the middle chimney. "'There it is! There it is!' shouted the professor. "'Now for the center of the globe!' he added in Danish. I looked at Hans to hear what he would say. "'Forut!' was his tranquil answer. "'Forward!' replied my uncle. It was thirteen minutes past one. End of chapter 16「Chapter Seventeen of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen Vertical Descent Now began our real journey. Hitherto our toil had overcome all difficulties. Now difficulties would spring up at every step. I had not yet ventured to look down the bottomless pit into which I was about to take a plunge. The supreme hour had come. I might now either share in the enterprise or refuse to move forward. But I was ashamed to recoil in the presence of the hunter. Hans accepted the enterprise with such calmness, such indifference, such perfect disregard of any possible danger, that I blushed at the idea of being less brave than he. If I had been alone, I might have once more tried the effect of argument, but in the presence of the guide I held my peace. My heart flew back to my sweet Verlandais, and I approached the central chimney. I have already mentioned that it was a hundred feet in diameter and three hundred feet round. I bent over a projecting rock and gazed down. My hair stood on end with terror. The bewildering feeling of vacuity laid hold upon me. I felt my center of gravity shifting its place, and giddiness mounting into my brain like drunkenness. There is nothing more treacherous than this attraction down deep abysses. I was just about to drop down when a hand laid hold of me. It was that of Hans. I suppose I had not taken as many lessons on gulf exploration as I ought to have done in the Frelser's Kirk at Copenhagen. But however short was my examination of this well, I had taken some account of its conformation. Its almost perpendicular walls were bristling with innumerable projections, which would facilitate the descent. But if there was no want of steps, still there was no rail. A rope fastened to the edge of the aperture might have helped us down, but how were we to unfasten it when arrived at the other end? My uncle employed a very simple expedient to obviate this difficulty. He uncoiled a cord of the thickness of a finger, and four hundred feet long. First he dropped half of it down, 
Then he passed it round a lava block that projected conveniently, and threw the other half down the chimney. Each of us could then descend by holding with the hand both halves of the rope, which would not be able to unroll itself from its hold. When two hundred feet down, it would be easy to get possession of the whole of the rope by letting one end go and pulling down by the other. Then the exercise would go on again ad infinitum. Now, said my uncle, after having completed these preparations, now let us look to our loads. I will divide them into three lots. Each of us will strap one upon his back. I mean only fragile articles. Of course, we were not included under that head. Hans, said he, will take charge of the tools and a portion of the provisions. You, Axel, will take another third of the provisions and the arms, and I will take the rest of the provisions and the delicate instruments. But, said I, the clothes and that mass of ladders and ropes, what is to become of them? They will go down by themselves. How so? I asked. You will see presently. My uncle was always willing to employ magnificent resources. Obeying orders, Hans tied all the non-fragile articles in one bundle, corded them firmly, and sent them bodily down the gulf before us. I listened to the dull thuds of the descending bale. My uncle, leaning over the abyss, followed the descent of the luggage with a satisfied nod, and only rose erect when he had quite lost sight of it. "'Very well. Now it is our turn.' Now I ask any sensible man if it was possible to hear those words without a shudder. The professor fastened his package of instruments upon his shoulders, Hans took the tools, I took the arms, and the descent commenced in the following order, Hans, my uncle, and myself. It was effected in profound silence, broken only by the descent of loosened stones down the dark gulf. I dropped, as it were, frantically clutching the double cord with one hand and buttressing myself from the wall with the other by means of my stick. One idea overpowered me almost, fear lest the rock should give way from which I was hanging. This cord seemed a fragile thing for three persons to be suspended from. I made as little use of it as possible, performing wondrous feats of equilibrium upon the lava projections which my foot seemed to catch hold of like a hand. When one of these slippery steps shook under the heavier form of Hans, he said in his tranquil voice, Gefakt. Attention, repeated my uncle. In half an hour we were standing upon the surface of a rock jammed in across the chimney from one side to the other. Hans pulled the rope by one of its ends, the other rose in the air. After passing the higher rock it came down again, bringing with it a rather dangerous shower of bits of stone and lava. Leaning over the edge of our narrow standing-ground, I observed that the bottom of the hole was still invisible. The same maneuver was repeated with the cord, and half an hour after we had descended another two hundred feet. I don't suppose the maddest geologist under such circumstances would have studied the nature of the rocks that we were passing. I am sure I did trouble my head about them. Pliocene, Miocene, Eocene, Cretaceous, Jurassic, Triassic, Permian, Carboniferous, Devonian, Silurian, or Primitive was all one to me. But the professor, no doubt, was pursuing his observations or taking notes, for in one of our halts he said to me, The farther I go, the more confidence I feel. The order of these volcanic formations affords the strongest confirmation to the theories of Davy. We are now among the primitive rocks, 
upon which the chemical operations took place which are produced by the contact of elementary bases of metals with water. I repudiate the notion of central heat altogether. We shall see further proof of that very soon." No variation, always the same conclusion. Of course, I was not inclined to argue. My silence was taken for consent, and the descent went on. Another three hours, and I saw no bottom to the chimney yet. When I lifted my head I perceived the gradual contraction of its aperture. Its walls, by a gentle incline, were drawing closer to each other, and it was beginning to grow darker. Still we kept descending. It seemed to me that the falling stones were meeting with an earlier resistance, and that the concussion gave a more abrupt and deadened sound. As I had taken care to keep an exact account of our maneuvers with the rope, which I knew that we had repeated fourteen times, each descent occupying half an hour, the conclusion was easy that we had been seven hours plus fourteen quarters of rest, making ten hours and a half. We had started at one, it must therefore now be eleven o'clock, and the depth to which we had descended was fourteen times two hundred feet, or twenty-eight hundred feet. At this moment I heard the voice of Hans. "'Halt!' he cried. I stopped short just as I was going to place my feet upon my uncle's head. "'We are there!' he cried. "'Where?' said I, stepping near to him. "'At the bottom of the perpendicular chimney,' he answered. "'Is there no way farther?' "'Yes. There is a sort of passage which inclines to the right. We will see about that to-morrow. Let us have our supper and go to sleep.' The darkness was not yet complete. The provision-case was opened. We refreshed ourselves, and went to sleep as well as we could upon a bed of stones and lava fragments. When lying on my back I opened my eyes and saw a bright sparkling point of light at the extremity of the gigantic tube three thousand feet long, now a vast telescope. It was a star which, seen from this depth, had lost all scintillation, and which by my computation should be forty-six Ursa Minor. Then I fell fast asleep. End of chapter 17。t MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion150. Then. Place a five-dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See betmgm.com for terms. Twenty-one plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington D.C. If you're a woman over forty dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. 
and MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 